Well, hey there, Heritage. We are so glad that you've chosen to join us this weekend as we continue in our What If Message series. We're so excited about what God is already saying to us and anticipating what he'll continue to say to us. My name's Jeremiah. I get to be part of the team here. And I want to say welcome to each of you. Hi to our Bentendorf campus, those of you watching online, and those of you right here at Rock Island. Uh, as I said, I get to be part of the team here. I've, I've been here for a while now, and some of you have, have heard me talk about growing up in the desert southwest before, and uh, I loved growing up in the desert. It was, it was an awesome experience. We love the Quad Cities in the Midwest, but there's just something special about the desert. And so I want to kind of loop you in on a little bit of my background because it might explain some, some things about me, all right? Uh, the first is that when, when you are growing up in the desert, there are, there are kind of four rules of thumb that you abide by just to stay safe and healthy. The first is the same rule of thumb you use when you have a cold or flu. It's to drink plenty of fluids, all right? It's, just, it's good advice all year round for everybody. Drink lots of water. It's really good in the desert. But then there are a few others that just, if you abide by these rules, these kind of rules of thumb, you'll, you'll live a long and prosperous life, okay? One of them is that if it slithers, it wants to kill you, okay? If it slithers, it wants you dead. I don't know why snakes desire that, but apparently in the desert they do. Another one is, it has to do with plants, and it's this. If it's outside and it's prickly, it wants to stab you, Okay? that desires that. Somewhere deep within the fiber of its being, it wants to inflict pain and harm on you. And then when it comes to the sun, it's, if it's shining, it wants to melt you. That's just kind of the, the rules of thumb that you abide by when you're living in the desert. And it's that last one that uh, creates interesting opportunities for you if you're in the desert. And somebody had the brilliant idea of inventing a sunshade, the kind that goes in your car. You know what I'm talking about, right? They're either accordion style or those spring-loaded things that sit between dashboard and visor, and they keep your car about four degrees cooler than if you didn't have that in there. And uh, it, it's actually a, a brilliant idea. I had one of those spring-loaded things that required uh, some sort of advanced engineering background in order to get it back into its original package. But I love those. They're, they're amazing. They're a great uh, piece of creativity that really makes life in the desert a little bit easier. I'm, I'm fascinated by them, but not by the fact that they, that they exist. What I find most interesting about these sunshades that are everywhere in the desert is that on every one, there is a warning. Of, uh, of some kind, on every one, there exists a warning similar to this one. Warning, do not drive with a sunshade in place. Now, that is at once funny and frightening. Funny because it's just ridiculous, right? We look at that and we think, who would do that? You know if you drive with a sunshade in place, you are headed for a crash, right? Like, it doesn't take advanced planning to figure that out. What's frightening about it is that the warning exists because we all know somebody tried it, right? Every warning exists because somebody thought it was a good idea to try the very thing that's warned against. I think I'm related to some of those people, by the way. But the reality is for, for us in this room, I think there are moments, times, opportunities in life where we find ourselves driving with the sunshade in place. Hopefully not literally. If you do that, stop it, okay? But I'm talking kind of more figuratively. Those times in life when we don't realize a crash is coming, and when it happens, we wonder, what happened? How did we get here? 
Why is it that that relationship went the way that it did? Why is it that that my career path seems totally different than anything I would have imagined for myself? Why is it that my family has been interacting in this challenge that seemed to come out of nowhere, this unexpected crash that took place? And I think there are times in life when we're driving around with the sunshade up and we don't even know it. Now, we're in the book of Philippians, and one of the threads that runs all throughout the book is the idea that God wants to give us renewed perspective, that that God wants to shift the way that we look at things. Another kind of foundational piece of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus, is the premise that you and I are made for more. Jesus said he came that we could have life and have it to the full. We are made for more. And so as we've been walking through the journey of Philippians, we've been asking a series of what-if questions. Today, I want us to kind of lean into a, 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 a particular question that's significant for us when we are driving with the sunshade up. And, you know, what I'm talking about there is that when it comes to our relationships or our plans for the future or how we process our past or how we live even right now, there are times when we just can't see further than what is in this moment. As much as we might want to, for some reason, we can't. And I believe that's because of this. It's the first fill-in that you have on your handout. It's that when our view is blocked, what's most immediate seems most significant. When our vision is blocked, what's right in front of us seems like it's the most important thing. And it becomes a lot harder for us when, we're, when we have our view blocked of what's further out to focus on anything other than the urgent thing in front of us. When if we could just have a different perspective, if we could just see a little further out, if the sunshade of our relationships, if the sunshade of our own desires, our own selfishness, our own challenges could be removed, we might handle what's right before us a little bit differently. And so the question we're we're asking today, remembering that at the heart of Jesus' message to us is that we're made for more. The question we're asking is, what if we really are made for more? If you've been in the church for a while, we've talked in, in church world for a long, long time. At the, at the very heart of the message of Jesus, he says, I came that you could have life and have it to the full. So this concept isn't anything new, but the, the problem is that so many of us say we hear that. And yet we live day in and day out as though this is all there is. As though the challenge of today that's all-consuming is all that is deserving of our attention. But what if we really are made for more? And what if we lived into that? I think there are a lot of us asking that question today. I think in light of, of the events of this past week, Incredible tragedy, senseless violence, highlighting the the racial tension in our nation today, a country in mourning. There are those of us who come into these spaces and we wonder, is this what should be? Surely it can't be. What if we were made 
for more? What if we really are made for more? How do we navigate those things, issues and realities of, of the, the issues and realities that we're facing in our nation, in our relationships, in our communities that seem so deep and so broken, they're almost hopeless? I believe when we start leaning into the idea that they're almost hopeless, it's a symptom that the sunshade is up for us. One of the things I love about getting to serve here is uh, the way we approach teaching. There's a team of leaders that meets once a month and meets for a whole day praying and discerning and discussing what it is that God would say to his people months and months out. We interact with those things. We, we come up with, with ideas, and it's amazing to see how the Holy Spirit shapes that. So what I want to point out for us today is that the message that we're hearing today, the passage of Scripture that landed this weekend, was determined or discerned, I should say, months ago. And the material that we're going to be walking through, even the, the format of today's message, was, was kind of locked in days ago before the challenges really that are besetting our country really came to light in this way this week. And I share that with you because I believe God is so good and so sovereign that, that he prepares us and he speaks to us. I think he's speaking now. Sometimes it's hard to hear and hard to see because the sunshade is up and our ears are plugged up. I want to pray for us before we go any further and dig into the word together, okay? Jesus, you said you came to give sight to the blind, to bind up broken hearts, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God, we are a people, we are a nation who is blind, whose hearts are broken, and who is desperate, whether we realize it or not, for your favor. So I pray you would speak to us today. I pray you would speak your healing truth to us, that you would convict us, that you would call us to more, that you would give us sight, and that we would know what it means to live into the year of your favor. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen. So we're asking the question, what if we really are made for more? In the light of that, I want us to read this first passage of Scripture from Philippians chapter 2 together. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I want you to note that at the center of this first passage, what's, at, what's kind of being discussed are our relationships with each other. It's a good reminder for us that our relationships with the people around us are the greatest indicator of how our relationship with God is doing. If we love God, we will love other people. That's kind of a, a given throughout all of the scriptures. It's a reminder for us as well that our made for more is never at the expense of someone else's made-for-more reality. We never live into our own uh, reality of what it means to be made-for-more at the expense of someone else being able to do the same. 
In fact, what we discover is that as we help other people discover what it means for them to live into more, we are living into our great purpose. We're going to unpack more of that as we go along, but I want you to note how the writer of Philippians here, a man named Paul, who has just gotten done talking about what it means to partner with Christ in his sufferings, who's talked about how to persevere in what we believe when it costs us everything, he shifts a little bit and then starts talking about our relationships with each other. And there seems to be this, this truth for us, that the first place where God wants to remove the sunshade from our vision is often when it comes to how we view ourselves in relationship with others. The very first thing he says is do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, don't do anything that is pursuing your own well-being at the expense of others. Vain conceit is empty pride, having a skewed view of ourselves. He, he then goes further. And he says, value others above yourselves. Pursuing the interests of others. The, the reality is you and I, if we try hard enough, if we work at it, we can shift our perspective on our own here. We can, we can find a way to pull the, the sunshade out when it comes to shifting from self-focus to helping others out. We can, we can do that if we try hard enough. It's not natural, but we can do it. The next thing, though, the next layer of removing the sunshade from our vision isn't one we can do on our own. It's something that Jesus has to do for us. He says it this way. He says, in our relationships with one another, we should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That is mind-boggling to me. We cannot do that in our own strength. We cannot do that in the way that we are taught to think. We're, we're going to unpack more of why this is significant. In fact, it's setting up the whole rest of the passage for us. But before we do that, I want us to look at a dynamic that takes place in in all of the relationships that we have, whether it's in our marriage, in our family, in our neighborhood, in our community, even in churches and in our country. There, there's a way of thinking that we are born into, that we live and think that it is the way to live because we're born with the sunshade up. I want to unpack that for us a little bit here. In most, if not all of our relationships, we tend to start from a place of judgment. We tend to start from a place where as we interact with someone, we begin to assess how how we fit in relationship with that person. Are they in the same social stratosphere as we are? Are, are they someone we like or don't like? Are they a Mac person? Yes. Or PC. I don't know what's wrong with you. Are, are they someone we can get along with or not? We begin to kind of even separate people in our mind as we interact with them right from the outset. And the longer we've known someone, the easier this becomes. We tend to start from a place of judgment. But when we do that, we move to a place where we start getting people to take sides in our judgment of that person. Think of the last challenge you had in a relationship. Maybe it's a relationship you weren't even aware existed, like driving to church this morning. 
and that person cut you off. And the person next to you in the car, you're like, did you see what they, can you believe that? Somebody ought to take their license, shouldn't they? And you're waiting for the affirmative reaction from the person with you, right? Like, yeah, that person's awful. Can you believe that Jeremiah said he's a Mac person? I can't believe it. We can't talk to him anymore, right? That's right. In our relationships, when we start from a place of judgment, we move to a place of taking sides. The challenge there is that taking sides positions us to live in friction with other people. We rub up against each other. We, we aren't necessarily moving together. We might be moving against each other, or at least it's tough to get moving in the same direction. The problem with friction, friction always causes those things that are rubbing up against each other to degrade. We would call that degradation in relationships, division. The outcome of that friction is division. And when we are divided, it becomes so much easier for us to move back into a place of judgment. And we see that happening over and over and over, all over. And I think some of the events of this week are indications that many of us live this way, not even knowing it. But what if it didn't have to be this way? What if we really were made for more? What would it mean for us if God could take those dynamics in relationship and in our world and do something about them? I'm so glad you asked because we're going to continue looking at the Scripture and see what it has to say to us. As, as the conversation continues, Paul says this. Remember, he's talking about Jesus, and he just said, you guys should have the same mindset as, of, as Jesus in your relationships with each other. So Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is, this is an incredible scripture. What it paints for us is the idea of Jesus taking a posture of self sacrifice. Even though fully God, he laid aside everything that was rightfully his and chose self-sacrifice for you and me. Even though he rightfully, as fully God, was holding all things together, Scripture says, by his powerful word, even though he, fully sovereign, fully God, chose to step into humanity and be fully God and fully man, we tend to think that the humiliation of Jesus began as he was flogged and crucified, but the reality is the humiliation of Jesus began when he chose to empty himself of everything for our sake and was made lowly for us. This seems to paint a, a really important picture for us. And the reality that our obscured vision when it comes to understanding more of what God has for us and for the world around us, that our obscured vision, the sunshade that's up in our lives, has less to do with our ability to see and much more to do with the condition of our heart. And I say that 
Because if you had been aware of the story of humanity all along, you would know that at the very beginning, when God created all of us in his image and said it was very good, when he created Adam and Eve in the garden, there was an opportunity for them to choose obedience or to choose to grasp at being God-like. And Adam, fully man, not fully divine, chose to grasp at being deity. And Jesus, fully divine, moves to set that right. But when Adam made his fatal error, it meant that each of us inherited a heart condition, the only solution for which is relationship with Jesus. And so here we see Jesus living into that out of, out of great love and compassion. Christian theologian and writer N.T. Wright, look at this passage and he said this. He said, this is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. This is a God who is known most clearly when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world. Wow. If God is known most clearly when he abandons his rights for the sake of the world, then I believe that you and I make God most known to others when we lay down our rights for the sake of others. In fact, one of, the, one of the realities of who Jesus is is in Isaiah, uh, we read that it's by the wounds of Jesus that we are healed. Somehow, the very woundedness of Jesus brings healing to us. And as we live into being Christ-like, I believe we begin to see this truth play out, that it is through our own self-sacrifice that God often brings healing and restoration to others. It's through our own self-sacrifice that God often brings healing and restoration to others. We don't necessarily like that very much, but it's the pattern of Jesus, and we are told to conform to his pattern as we live. What if we really are made for more? This doesn't happen if we interact in relationships from a place of judgment, though. We cannot do it. Because starting from a place of judgment means starting from a place of self-preservation. We read this passage of who God is and what it means for him to love us, how he demonstrated that for us. I think all of that is summed up in a single part of one verse in the book of James. It's this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is part of what it means to live into more. Mercy is self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Mercy is defined as kindness with a desire to help. In other words, it's, it's a desire to see other people live into their very best. What would it look like? What if we really were made for more? What would it look like instead of living in from a cycle of judgment, we chose a different way, a harder way, but a better way. When we start from a place of mercy, and again, the only way to start there is being aware of the mercy we've already received. 
we are naturally positioned to focus on what is best for each other. No longer are we getting people to our side, but we are actually for each other. We're for the person that is most challenging because we desire to see God formed in them. We are for the person who is most annoying, who has created the most challenge and pain, not because, not because we want to see those challenges swept away, but because we know Jesus is the one who can bring life and hope and wholeness. We are for each other. What if we really are made for more? Now let's take that a little bit further. What if the most challenging person, what if the person who's inflicted the most pain, what if the person or the, the entity that has created the greatest hardship for you, what if that person really is made for more? And God has positioned you and me to help them live into that and discover it. How does that change the way we interact? When we live for each other, now we don't have friction breaking things down, but we have alignment. And if the, if the byproduct of friction is division, the byproduct of alignment is unity. Not uniformity, not where everybody looks the same, not where everybody acts exactly the same way, not, not where we, we can't be discerned one from the other, not uniformity, but unity, where we together move, where together we focus on what God's very best is for us, for our communities, for our families, where together we seek God, knowing that the image of God resides in each of us. And Jesus came to see it restored. And when we live in unity, we are positioned to again live in to mercy. The first cycle we talked about might feel natural. The first cycle, starting from judgment, is what, is what our muscle memory tells us we are to do. But church, just because something comes naturally, that does not mean it's what we were made for. This is what we were made for. We can live into it and discover it when we live into who Jesus is and what he's calling us to. What if we really were made for more? I think it could change everything for us. Think about what it would look like in your relationships, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, if just one person, you, started from a place of mercy. What would that do? Yes, it will cost. But on the other side, it's so worth it. This isn't just for individuals, though. In fact, whole, whole churches can lean into this. And I, I want us to watch a video for a moment with Pastor Sean and a friend of ours talking about what it looks like as Heritage Church tries to lead and live from a place of mercy. Check out the screens. Hey, Heritage. Uh, I'm here down at the Esperanza Center in the Floresiente neighborhood with my friend, Officer Nick Wade of the Moline Police Department. Nick, thank you so much for taking time to just hang out a bit and talk about what's happening in this neighborhood and the impact of the Esperanza Center. So you've been in Floresiente for two years in a very specific role. Can you just describe what that role is? Yes, I actually worked straight out of the community. I have an office down here across the street. Uh, our role down here is to kind of bridge the gap between police and this, uh, this neighborhood, specifically in the Latino culture, people who come here don't generally trust the police, they're scared of us, so we're here to, to uh, problem solve, to get rid of that. So if somebody comes in and they need help with something, 
uh, I can spend the time with them that a normal patrolman couldn't because he has calls waiting for him. So I can spend 45 minutes trying to solve a problem for somebody um, and building that relationship down here. So that's our goal. What are some of the unique challenges that this part of the Quad Cities faces in particular? Uh, challenges unique to this neighborhood would be the presence of gangs and the, the heavy recruiting that they do. But they target kids for two reasons. Mainly is one, they're easy to influence and there's very little that can be done with them legally. So the penalties for gang crimes uh, committed by youth are very small and I know that so they use them. What has the presence of Esperanza and Vida Nueva, uh, what impact has that had in this neighborhood? Uh, well, I'd say initially before you guys got here, the opinion in the neighborhood was you were going to just come down here and be another church, which this church is already here. Um, but you guys are trying to be more than that, where people walk in with any need you can think of, whether it be paperwork or trying to find a place to rent or, you know, trying to find a lawyer or uh, asking about a citation that they got written by an officer. <laughs> Um, or the service you guys started where you're helping kids get to school. You know, that was a real big thing I heard a lot about when you guys first started it. I show in a neighborhood that you're here for more than just uh, to provide a Sunday sermon, you know, to provide practical services and to help, help these families with the obstacles they're presented when they arrive here. So Nick, I want to thank you just for the service you provide. You serve in a very critical role here in the Quad Cities and, and you are someone Having a law enforcement background myself, you're someone that I see that recognizes a healthy balance between truth and love, and you do that really, really well. And I thank you for the way you've served not only the city, but particularly the Florisante neighborhood these past two years. It's my, it's my privilege. I love what God is doing, church. Yeah, that's awesome. What if we really were made for more? What if we lived like we really believed that we were made for more? And that mercy triumphs over judgment. It could change everything for us. But you know, the, the passage that we've been digging into isn't done yet. Uh, the next section starts to answer the question of, of how Jesus could so willingly give all that he had. And how you and I can live into a cycle of mercy that may cost us everything. It's, be, it's because I believe there's yet another sunshade in place that God wants to pull out of the way. And we see that in the place of how Jesus interacted with God. What happened on the other side of Christ's obedience? Remember, Jesus was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' obedience positioned him to be exalted. And you and I can choose obedience. We can choose to live a life of mercy though it costs us everything. We can choose to live a life of mercy knowing that because Jesus was obedient, we live in right relationship with God. And he will call us to opportunities of obedience. And when we do that, we do so knowing that Jesus is king. That at the name of Jesus, strongholds fall. And that one day at long last, everything really will be set right. 
that it will not matter what our race is or our profession is, but that each of us, marked by God's image, are called to live in a way that honors Him, in a way that is pursuing Him, in a way that exalts Him, in a way that says we really are made for more. And when we live that way, it changes everything. But, but so what? What are we going to do with this? We could, in, in reality, we could hear this message, we could dig through these scriptures together, and we can leave this place with nothing changing. And I don't believe that that's what God has for us. I think there are a couple of questions we can ask of ourselves, or we can ask the Holy Spirit to give us an answer to as we process this. The first one is, where is God positioning you to live with renewed perspective? In other words, what's the, what's the next sunshade in your life that God is saying, I want to I remove that so you can see a bigger picture? Where is God positioning you to live with renewed perspective? If in the life of Jesus, obedience was the hinge point to exaltation, the same is true, I believe, for us. And one of the things that continues to block our view as individuals, as, as a nation, as organizations, is that we live in disobedience. But when we choose to follow, when we choose to lean into what God has for us, suddenly we begin to see a bigger picture. On the other side of our obedience, there is clarity. What's your next significant step? If you really believed that you were made for more, and it's so true, what would your next step be? If you really believe that, what would your rest, and what would your next step of boldness and risk be if you really believed you were made for more? I think you know what it is. For some of us, it's actually stepping into relationship with Jesus. For those of us who have already done that, maybe it's this day stepping into the waters of baptism. The very first thing that God calls us to do, the very first step of obedience when we follow Jesus is being baptized. If you've been following Jesus, but you haven't been baptized, I'm not trying to hard sell this. I'm telling you, you're living in disobedience. And if you, if you are crying out to God and asking him, what's next? What's more? What does it mean for me to live into more? And you haven't yet stepped into the waters of baptism, your very next thing is to do that. And watch as your vision expands. I don't know what your next thing is, but you do. What if you really were made for more. What would that mean next for you? The next question is this. Where does God want to use you to see mercy triumph? What relationship has been popping to mind throughout this morning? What situation in life has just been filling your mind as we've been talking? I believe that's the place where God wants to see you take your next step of renewed perspective and let mercy triumph. Imagine what it would mean for us if this day we chose to live from a place of mercy above all else. Let's pray. Jesus, Savior, once again we thank you for the gift of your word and for who you are. God, these truths from your word are so rich and so good, and I, I thank you for how much you love us, 
how you love us enough to call us to more, how you love us enough to make a way, how you love us enough to position us to live outside of our own strength and ability. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are listening to this message today, who know what their next step is. And I ask, oh God, that you would give strength and courage to do that thing. That you would show us what it is as a body and as individuals to live in obedience, to see you lifted high, to follow you above all else. Lead us, we pray. Have your way among us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.